Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to look at the the festival cycles. So somebody want to start at 23.1? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, These are my fixed times, the fixed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. On six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred occasion. You shall do no work. It shall be a Sabbath of the Lord throughout your settlements. These are the set times of the Lord, the sacred occasions which you shall celebrate each at its appointed time. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, There shall be a Passover offering to the Lord. And on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day you shall celebrate a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. Seven days you shall make gifts to the Lord. The seventh day shall be a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. Okay. So, looking at the sacred calendars that we have. We have one in the book of Exodus from the book of the covenant. And we have a calendar in Deuteronomy. And the calendar in Deuteronomy gives us a slightly different listing. And we forget this because we harmonize them, right? And we come up with what we have in Leviticus. But when we look previous, I just want you to see this is what we have. So when we look at Exodus, we have Chag HaMatot, we have Chag HaKatsir, and Chag HaAsif. Sound familiar? (laughs) So Chag HaMatot is... The festival, the feast of Matzah. Hagakatzil is the uh, harvest festival uh, in the summer. And then Chag Asif is the ingathering, the festival of ingathering. <laughs> right. So Chag, what is Chag? Chag is always a pilgrimage festival. Right? This always means you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to take... It's Hajj. This is where Hajj comes from. It's from Chag. This idea of a sacred pilgrimage. Um, And it happened three times for the Israelites. So uh, each year. Chag HaMatzot, Chag HaKatzir, Chag HaAsif. All right. Now you look at Deuteronomy. And what do we get in Deuteronomy? We get Pesach, Chag HaShavuot, and Chag Hasukot. So we get the Paschal business. We get Chag HaShavuot, which is something about weeks, counting from Pesach 49 days plus one. So seven sets of seven weeks till Chag HaSukot, which is the festival of the festival of booths. Right. So you can see already from Exodus to Deuteronomy, there is a there's a shift, there's an evolution already in the understandings of the of the year, in the understanding of um, what was happening at each season. So one of the most interesting, you know I tell you about this a lot, one of the most interesting is that one. What was important to Deuteronomy was Pesach. What was important to Exodus was Hag Hamatzot. So remember, they were two different things. The Pesach is the Paschal offering. Hag Hamatzot is a seven-day festival of eating matzah. Those get put together. Were right? the dates the same? Yes. For Exodus and Deuteronomy, the, yes. the date. Uh, but, but... <laughs> It's all that yoga. Um, All right, so when you ask about the dates, Chag HaShavuot, what am I going to tell you about dates for that? 
You asked me, is it the same date? Well, that's counted from Pesach. Right. Chag doesn't have a date. Right, it's counted from Pesach. Just count. There is no date, right. It's count, it depends how you translate what it says in the Torah about how you do that, how you count it. Depending on when you start counting is when you end up on day 50. And there were lots of rabbinic arguments about when you start counting. Um, and so, I mean, the rabbis finally agreed. There's a majority opinion, and the halacha goes according to the majority. So there was a decision, but it's because that was what the majority said, right? Not, not because it was so clear. <laughs> so there's a lot of arguing among the rabbis about when you start exactly to count seven weeks of seven days. Then the, the day after that is Chag HaShavuot. So in the rabbinic world, if you really, really want to discredit a rabbi's argument, you celebrate Chag HaShavuot on your calculation. Right? So it, there was a famous rabbinic argument that it got so ugly and so bad that one sect was celebrating Yom Kippur a different time than, right? It got that ugly. It got that ugly. Um, they just would not accept each other's authority. And so the way you dig in about authority when it comes to post-temple times, the way you dig in about your authority is it mostly about time, sacred time. That's how you, that's really what it comes down to. You can, this one's kosher, this one's not, blah, 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 blah. But when you really want to push it to the wall, it's about when do we do X and when do we do Y. Um, so, so then we get this calendar in Leviticus. So what does our calendar in Leviticus tell us? Where did we start? 23? Mm-hmm. One? Aha. So first of all, we get Shabbat listed in the, the festival cycle. Even though it's not a festival, it's a you know weekly observance, but that tells us something, right? About the priestly worldview. Shabbat is boom in there. All right, what do we have after Shabbat? Here are my fixed times. First comes six days uh, of work, and the rabbis actually say, which is a translation I love, Sheshit Yamim Ta'asem Lacha. You can retranslate that to say. Not on six days work may be done. How do you say ta'asem lacha, Rita? You shall work. Aha. For six days you shall do your work. Ta'asem lacha. You should be busy for six days. It's not just you are permitted to work, right? It gets translated that way because the end is Shabbat. But I think, it's, I think the rabbis are right who translate it. Six days you shall work. You are supposed to be in the world, doing things in the world, making the world a good place, making a living, building a home for your families, building a community, building a lovely synagogue. Not here, of course, but right. You're supposed to have a lot of things to send to, to the temple in Jerusalem, right? You're supposed to make a good living, so your tithing is a big amount, right? So that's a good thing. Well, you shouldn't be sitting and learning all day. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. That's what you call your work. Just saying. All right. I found it interesting that it's your work, that it's connected to the individual. Rather than what? The community? Work in general. But but they're commandments. Right. So it's you know it's either going to be individual or plural. Except this one does On six days, work may be done. That's right. Mine too. That's why I'm arguing with that translation. Because I just don't think it's... I think the other translation is, is better. That it's... Ta'asem lacha. You shall do work six days and then on Shabbat. setting up what Shabbat is. Yeah, right. But I think it's saying more than what Shabbat is. I think it's saying what we're supposed to do most of the time. Is work. We're not supposed to sit on a mountaintop and contemplate our navel. That is not the Jewish goal. Six days a week you shall work. 
we're supposed to be busy and engaged with the world. We are not supposed to retreat to a monastery, right? And have Shabbat be all the time. You're going to ruin our retirement year. <laughs> yeah, right? Shabbat is one out of seven. That's the ratio. Does this, does this retranslation harken at all back to Genesis 3 after the fall, where because of what Adam and Eve did and, and God is telling Adam, you know, by the sweat of your brow, shall you know bread or whatever. So in other words, that you, you must work in order to live. Mm-hmm. After, after this, you've got to work. For sure. Other, otherwise, you can't live. For sure. For sure. All right, what do we get here? It's our first holiday. Yes, yes. When I said your work, that's what it says in the Ten Commandments. Okay. I was mixing up the two. I hate it when you do that. I hate it when you mix up the Ten Commandments with Leviticus. It's like, and you are a president. You are a president. Oh, my God. All right. So (laughs) the 14th day of the month, right? So at twilight, what's going to happen? Pesach. So this is the slaughtering, right, of the lamb. To recount what happened that night in Egypt. So it is Pesach. Do we see anything after that? We do. What do we see after that? The after that, the day after that starts Chag HaMatzot. So Leviticus puts these together. So we have Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And so what comes after Chag... And, and notice how many days is Chag HaMatzot? Seven. 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 How many days do we Reconstructionists keep Pesach? Seven. Seven. So next time your friends say, you're having pizza already? <laughs> you can say, if you turn to the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> Pesach is a seven-day festival. All right. So, but but... Notice, though, even here in Leviticus, Pesach is separate and different from Chag HaMatzot. That's where pizza comes from. Yes? So we conflate them. But even here in Leviticus, Pesach is not the same thing as Chag HaMatzot. Pesach is not seven days. Pesach is one, one sacrifice, one thing that happens. The first day. Yes, that's Pesach. Chag HaMatzot is seven days. The festival of eating matzah. Because they were originally two different things. One was the semi-nomadic pastoralists. Their spring celebration was the lambing. So you offered a lamb to the source of lambs. And then you ate matzah. That was the grain, right? The new wheat came in, so you got rid of all old wheat. You ate only new wheat uh, from the new harvest. So if you're eating only new wheat, you are eating, by definition, unleavened bread. You have no starter. You have no sourdough. No fermentation. So you eat matzah. Okay. So Pesach, Chag, Hamatzot become conflated here, and we have now um, those put together. And then, but notice, let's notice, shall we? When does that happen? Verse 5? When, when does Pesach happen? The 14th day of the first month. Which is not Rosh Hashanah. Which is not Rosh Hashanah. Right? Clearly preserving, right, a, a calendar that has the year starting in the spring. The first month is Nisan. So, you know, we kind of always take for granted that the new year is in the fall. But there's clearly, a, you know, a tradition that uh, is very old that the new year was in the spring. We also have an old, fast, old tradition um, of it being in the fall. So both are ancient. It isn't like we had one and then it changed. They both were ancient. They never really got resolved. History resolved it for us. After the destruction, right, then you have the Jews are in 
Babylonia. When is the Babylonian New Year? In the fall. So history resolves that argument. Yes? Something very interesting to me in this discussion, uh, I can't remember the name of the author who wrote the book, The Gift of the Jews, The Gifts of the Jews. Thomas and one of them was the concept of time. And then we consider also the power of the gematria in Jewish tradition, the concept of numbers and how important numbers are. And we see it evidenced right here. Numbers, time, all of it gives order to our our lives and to our, our concept of ritual and Far be it from me to ever, ever take away from the gift of the Jews to society, but, (laughs) but, (laughs) right? In Acadia, in Acadian, we have this term, sapatu. Sapatu was a, a festival to the goddess at the quarter moon. <clears throat> so, I mean, at the full moon, right? So, um, and it was a, a rest of the heart, a heart rest in honor of the goddess. I find it very hard to believe that there's not a connection. There's just once a month. Right, so then you, now you take, you do that again at the half moon and at the quarter moons, and what happens? <laughs> if you go by the the quarter moon, right? So you you basically divide twenty eight by four, you get seven. So I'm not somebody who believes the seven day cycle started with the Jews. I, I believe it starts earlier. Um, it evolves, and certainly we took it to new heights. But we don't have a great record of what Sapatu meant to the. Acadians, right? So, I mean, I don't know what that that meant. You know, a heart rest and practicing a rest of the heart. Um, but, but I, I have to believe Shabbat comes out of this. So I believe there's a relationship, a sacred relationship to time and the sacredness of harvest time and seasons. I believe that exists long before early Israel. Early Israel enshrines it, for sure, right? Um, Shabbat becomes a central. Right, practice. God gives, gives form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe the gift is that we only have to work six days instead of 27. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that might be the gift of the Jews. Yes, you only have to work six days, not 27, before you get a rest of uh, the heart. Um, all right, so then after we have the festival of unleavened bread, what do we get? Uh, Ah, now it gets complicated, doesn't it? What do we got? So look at when you enter the land I'm giving to you and you reap its harvest. All right, so where are we now? Now now we're in summer. When you harvest in the summer, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. The priest shall elevate the sheaf before God for acceptance on your behalf. The priest shall elevate it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day that you elevate the sheaf, you shall offer as a burnt offering to God a lamb, the meal offering, blah, 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 14. Until that very day, until you have brought the offering of your God, you shall eat no bread or parched grain or fresh ears. It is a law for all time. So we don't usually hear about this practice. Fresh ears? Yeah. Really, Jonna? Really? Yes, ears of corn. Yes. It has never been a tradition for us to eat fresh ears. In any other sense that I know of, anyway. It could be a practice that has fallen out of the written tradition, but (laughs) there would have been rumor of it, I'm sure. All right, so 15. (laughs) From the day on which you bring the sheaf of elevation offering, the day after the Sabbath, you shall count off seven weeks. They must be complete. You must count until the day after the seventh week, 50 days. Then you shall bring an offering of new grain to God, right? Okay, how clear is this about, <laughs> about when 
when things happen. Does everyone have Shavuot at the same time? If my first sheaf happens and I bring it to the priest and the priest elevates it and then I got to go to the Shabbat and then the day after that Shabbat I start counting, is it the same as if my, you know, if down the road where there's a little bit different weather pattern, like what if their sheaf comes a different day, right? It's It's just not terribly, awfully clear, right? What that means. Of course, they came to agreement on what it means, but um, but it doesn't seem terribly clear, right? Um, so usually, and so we get the offerings that are going to have because Leviticus is very concerned with the offerings, right? In other places, we don't see so much about what's offered. We see what the holiday's about, you know, what it means, particularly in Exodus, right? You will do this because I took you out. That's the night of, right? What does Leviticus care about? Here, here's exactly what you bring on those days. And this is, you know, this is for all time. And, and this is the calendar of offerings. It's more about the calendar of offerings than it is about the liturgical calendar, right? So 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, now we're going to connect harvesting to justice. So you're, here's, here's when you're going to celebrate your things and you're going to bring stuff to God and the priest is going to elevate stuff and you're going to have a big holiday and all that good stuff and what do we get told right in the middle of all that 22 when you reap the harvest of your land you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest you shall leave them for the poor and the stranger I am Adonai your God so right smack in the middle of you're having a harvest festival yay here's when it happens here's what you do yay and when you harvest, be sure that you are harvesting in a way that you are worthy of the bounty of those harvests. And the way that you do that is leket and pea. You leave the corners, pea, and whatever falls while your people are, you know, picking it up, whatever falls, leket stays on the ground. Right? Where do we see this as part of a love story? Yes, yes. So Ruth, right, Boaz says to his guys, drop a lot. (laughs) He's he's allowed Ruth to glean in his field because they're poor, they have nothing. And so Boaz says, make sure you drop a lot of leket. All right. So where do we get the tradition of eating dairy on Shabbat? Is that... Anything from the Torah, or is it some historical thing? Why don't I remember this? Eating what? Dairy. Dairy. Oh. Or that it was the giving of the Torah. I know, I, I know, but I, I think I want to say it's because you refrain from meat, so you eat dairy. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the what the positive injunction about the custom about eating dairy. Yes, it's about the giving of Torah. Where did that come? But I, I'm, I can't remember. Somebody Google it. Um, it why we eat dairy on Shabbat? It's the giving of Torah, and we don't know what day it was. And we're not sure why, where Sinai is. That's a very interesting aspect to the giving of Torah. Right? You, you would think it would be a specific day, a specific time, a specific place. Well, but you have to remember, since it's not here, mm-hmm. that this is the giving of Torah. Oh, it may not be. So, no, no, God forbid. God forbid. It might not be. God forbid. The giving of Torah is rabbinic. The the dating of the giving of Torah to Shavuot is rabbinic. How come? Well, first of all, they have a very, we studied it and I still don't understand it. Um, They have a very complicated way to prove (laughs) that the giving of Torah happened on Shavuot, right? It's it's a master of like brain twisting like craziness. Um, some of which is circular reasoning. Mm-hmm. Like, well, because of course we know that on it's like, well, how do we know that on? Right? Like, so then that means it's like, okay, wait, what? Yeah. Right, it depends when you raise the sheaf, really. Mm-hmm. Like, well, but of course, fifty days, like fifty days from when? Right. So, but they have this very convoluted, wonderful, amazing, complicated way to prove that it happened there. But why do the rabbis put? Why there? They could have put it anywhere. They could have put Matan Torah on any date because like Bert brilliantly said, we don't get a date. 
in the Torah for revelation. So they could have put it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Why? Why on Shavuot? Maybe everybody was already gathered together, and they figured, you know, everybody's in the synagogue. Let's do something when they're there. <laughs> not far, mm-hmm. not far from. Probably why. So, well, would it be the first gathering of the year? <laughs> no. This is the first gathering of the year, Pesach. So, tell me, tell me, what 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 are we celebrating? Forget the forget the lambing. Forget the you're no longer harvesting. What's the meaning of Chag Hamatzot? You have food. Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> you have food. Yes. Freedom. Exodus. Freedom. The redemption from slavery. Right. What is the meaning of Chag Ha'asif, Chag Ha'asukot? Once you're no longer harvesting. What's we're not harvesting? We're not harvesting anymore. What's the meaning of Sukkot? Wandering in the desert with God when we lived in temporary shelter, people. Your booths are about traveling in the desert. We're depending only on God. We move out of our houses. We go back to this fragility of living only with the protection of the divine. Yada, yada, yada. We take up the species. Yada, yada, yada. Right? So, because once you're no longer harvesting, what is the meaning of any of this? For a people in exile. What does this mean in Babylonia? When you are a shoe merchant. When you're a silk merchant. When you're a physician. What the heck does... A sheaf and fifty, mm-hmm. like what does that mean? So what's now? What am I trying to say? That you need the revelation in the middle of that. <laughs> okay. You need a historical overlay for Shavuot. It means nothing if you're not harvesting. You have to have a historical. Israelite experience that you lay on top of Shavuot the way we did with Chag HaMatzot, Pesach, Chag HaAsif, Chag HaSukot. There's a historical overlay. The rabbis need something to make Shavuot say something to people who are no longer harvesting. So, yeah. Basically, the only, that, that holiday would have been meaningless without another... It's tie-in. Thank you. So were there, were there other holidays? Every other holiday had a good tie-in? Or was like yeah. Shavuot was the only empty spot? Yeah. Shavuot didn't have anything to give it any meaning outside of an agrarian system. Right. They needed something new to make it important. Yes. They had to reconstruct the holiday. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Think about our connection to the festivals. What is our least strong connection to which one of these? I mean, we might disagree, but. Well, okay. I would say Sukkot. I would say because in a lot of communities on Shavuot, people stay up all night and study Torah. It's about receiving Torah. And. Even in Duluth, Minnesota, like we had scholars come in, or I taught sessions, and, and congregants taught sessions. We made silk tali tote one time. Like we, it was it was a it was a big deal revelation, right? And so we we studied Torah, and we had learning that was that we were celebrating. So we had a tikkun leil shavuot. The the one that is the, the least power for. We folks who are no longer tied to the festivals is the one with the weakest historical overlay. Right? Living in booths. Okay. Jews are like, I am synagogued out. Forget it. Forget it. Like someone said, what do you all do on Sukkot? I'm like... We have a big tiki bar outside. <laughs> and the little kids are so cute in there. Like, you know, I think Jews celebrate Sukkot a lot more than they celebrate Shavuot. Modern, West Island, Jews. Mm-hmm. Are, 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 are Interesting. a lot more familiar with, oh, your friend built a sukkah, and you get you know, invited to come in. Absolutely. Or maybe you build your own and you invite your friends there. But Shavuot is kind of news. Maybe it's because it's funny. summer. That's funny. Maybe it's because I've been part of synagogue life. Mm-hmm. Right. Synagogue life is very oriented to Shavuot, and people don't show up on Sukkot. Right. People come to Shavuot programming, right? We did Mel Skolt. He came and talked to us, and we had a whole salon at my house for Shavuot, right? So 
Synagogue life seems to respond, and I'm not saying synagogues don't do Sukkot. I'm going to get all, all kinds of emails. Yeah, are you saying that synagogues don't? Where our synagogue does Sukkot? Like so. Yes, we do Sukkot as synagogues, but I feel like Jews are so sick and tired of being in shul that they don't. There's nothing big that people do, and so and and also you live in Southern California, right? Okay, Duluth, Minnesota, Sukkot, not so much. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like I decided, Eliana was born on the fourth day of Sukkot. So that was her Hebrew, that's her Hebrew birthday. So I decided, wow, like she has an English birthday, that's fine, but let's make a big deal out of her Jewish birthday and it's a way that she was born on a festival. We can like, she'll celebrate the rest of her life in a sukkah. This is gonna be so exciting. <laughs> so we, so she'll have this Jewish connection always and it's so special and so she was three like, and we, we bought a kit and we, we were in Duluth and we bought a kit and we were so excited and some a couple of people came over to help us and we we made this little sukkah and we put these chairs on a little table and I was just like this is gonna be so fun it's her birthday it's her Jewish birthday we come out the next morning and there's a pile of snow on the table piles of snow in the chairs and I have a picture of Eliana in the sukkah in, in her hat and her gloves and her like you know snowsuit like standing there it's just like happy festival of harvest it's like can we go in now yay mommy we have a sukkah can we go in the house Right, so, and, and in Philadelphia, when I was in rabbinical school, it was freezing a lot of times in the sukkah. It was miserable. We had lovely, big rabbinic, uh, rabbinical students, blah, blah, blah. Like, it was miserable in that sukkah. Yeah, but now... So, so I think that also may be regionally, like, it may be part of the reason that Sukkot yeah. is celebrated more yeah. that people can put your sukkah aside and invite people yeah. over. Yeah. In place, there's many places in North America no. where no. Sukkot is just a is just torture, <laughs> right? Unless you're really into hardcore, we're gonna celebrate. It's just miserable. That's not what they. That's true. in those times in this place yeah. would have been more like Southern California. Correct. Exactly. Right. That's what I'm saying. Right. So I think here there may be a more natural tie. I'm not trying to argue yeah. for this. I'm just saying, I think that. The historical overlay became what Jews who no longer lived in that climate or in that kind of a society, it's what they resonated with about the holiday. It was very smart of the rabbis, right, to give it a a historical overlay because that's really what remained powerful for the Jewish people in many ways. Rita? I was going to ask if you want to say a few words about the Omer. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes. Well, yes, we but, but we're, we're going there. Yes. Um, what about, I mean, I'm but before you do, so. East, but what about, you know, all the um, Jews in Eastern Europe and so forth? I mean, that's sort of like being in Duluth. Yeah. They were going big with It's miserable, right? So, Russia, think about Russia, yeah. Poland. Yeah. What Sukkot would have been like? It would have been cold. Right? So, but think, think pre. Think pre Holocaust, you know, think these huge, yeah. huge Hasidic communities mm-hmm. in, in these shtetls in Poland and Russia. I mean, it had to be miserable at Sukkot. Miserable. How do they deal with the midnight sun the, and, and darkness? Burns. You have to check the halacha. I'm oh. sure the halacha has it all figured out. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question about the meaninglessness. Uh, well, there's this thing that had historical significance and then it was as life went on, it no longer had significance, and there had to be this like infusion of historical overlay. And so, my question is: there's something very, very scary in that meaninglessness. It's almost implicit that if we do not do this historical overlay, something here is at stake. And I guess, like, mm-hmm. what is at stake? And then, <clears throat> what is the nature of that meaninglessness? Have we not done that historical overlay? Uh, I think that the meaninglessness is tied to the fact that Chag is always about harvest. When your entire civilization, your whole culture is built around the cycles of the harvest, you can pretty much count on everybody getting it, that this is shocking. Whoa, we should celebrate, right? Think about Thanksgiving, right? You know, we no longer have a tie to the bounty of the final harvest so that we don't starve in the winter, right? But Thanksgiving is all about the fall harvest, that the fall harvest came in and they weren't going to die. 
the pilgrims weren't going to die. Why are we still, still sitting around the Thanksgiving table? It's not because the fall harvest came in and we're going to survive the winter. It's because the pilgrims sat down mm-hmm. and with the in Native Americans and did that, right? So it, it's the historical overlay that holds you when the original celebration won't. And if we weren't held, what would, what would be the threat? What would be at risk? Well, that we just wouldn't have a liturgical calendar. We wouldn't have celebrations. We wouldn't have festivals as the Jewish people anymore, right? They would just have gone away. Like every other civilization, every other civilization that had their culture tied to their land and to their harvests were obliterated once they were, uh, what do you call it? Exiled, right? Once Rome crushed them or whoever it was that crushed them and carried them off, it went away because... because they don't have the harvest mm-hmm. over there that they had where they came from, right? And they, and they don't have control over their calendar, right? But when you have a historical memory that's tied to those times and those festivals, now we have a way and a reason to observe no matter where we are, including Russia and Poland, right? I'd like to answer Bert's question about time. Uh, places like uh, Alaska or... Uh, very, very northern Europe, uh, you can have 20 hours of light or 20 hours of... of so what's the halacha? Or 24. He was asking about the halacha. Huh? You pick a city. Like Seattle is, is, uh, determines Shabbat for people who live way up in Alaska. There you go. There's the halacha. You pick a city. Maybe is, it, is it possible that the resonance, the difference between the way we look at it seems that Shavuot is sort of a rabbinic directed holiday in the sense that you come to observe and thank God for Torah but the people are harvesting to keep themselves alive they're told by their teachers their rabbis this is the big deal we're going to celebrate this with Sukkot this is a true Celebration of the people doing work, growing their their harvest, and thanking God for the harvest. I mean, just to, that's maybe it may be the answer why you said that Shavuot is a sort of synagogue oriented holiday. The people just don't res the people don't resonate as much. So the but the overlay is by the rabbis in yeah. both cases. These yeah. people are not harvesting anymore. The people that the rabbis are talking to are not harvesting. They're in Babylonia. But the people sort of get it, though. That they, that they don't live in Israel anymore. There's no harvest anymore. Well, there's always a harvest someplace. Always but if you're not harvesting, <laughs> do I know when the barley harvest is here in America? Do I know where the, when the wheat comes in in America? I have no clue because I'm completely disconnected. Well, it's not so much the harvest as, as the individuals doing the work. But they're not working. That's the point. In Babylonia, they're not working at Sukkot. They're not doing anything different than they do the rest of the year. I'm not making my point. Okay. Our tradition requires that we are willing to value memory. Yes. And to relate to it. Yes. And to keep going back and forth. Yes. Even if it isn't relevant exactly to our time, that we identify with that. So that, those memories, you're saying that we value memory, right? That, that that's what kind of this lifts up. And that, because those, when you say, even though it's not applicable to our time, but we've always brought those memories forward to be applicable to our time, you can't do that with a harvest, right? You, you can't bring the meaning of a harvest. Of course, you can. That's what we do with Thanksgiving. We say, okay, they harvested, and so we're going to sit down and be grateful for what we have, and we do that to some extent on Sukkot and Shavuot, that we are grateful for what we have. We know it's a harvest festival, but the meaning doesn't carry. But when you talk about the story, mm-hmm. the meaning of the story carries and survives. Well, not only do we accept the memories, we accept the myths. Well, I think that's what Sarah's saying, right? Is it that's how we. That's how those memories retain power for us. Is that they become mythic, right? Absolutely. Like, because we all know that it's a myth. We all know the Thanksgiving story is a myth. But every tradition does have its myth that it 
drags along the absolutely it has to right otherwise stories are just stories a naive question George from you a naive question I find that hard to believe the revelation is the ten commandments but here we're calling it the Torah is that correct so for the rabbis there's no difference for the rabbis the ten commandments and the Torah are given at the same time all of it happens at Sinai at once Including the Torah, which wasn't written. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. If it's the word of God, of course. Even the part where it says, and Moses died on the mountain. But Moses is writing, and Moses died on the mountain, right? The rabbis have a lot to say about that. They have a lot of, because some people question, like, they weren't stupid. Like, they're like, wait, this was given to Moses on the but it says he died. Like, how does that work? So, but then the rabbis have some very poignant midrashim, about Moses hearing those words from God and having to write, and Moses died on the mountain, never having seen the promised land. Right? That, there are some really beautiful midrashim about Moses learning that it, it, way before it happens. Right? But, but, um, but yeah. So Torah happens. Not wait. Not only. Not only does Moshe receive this. What else does Moshe receive? The whole Talmud. <laughs> Moshe receives the Torah Shebe'alpeh. He receives the Torah Shebe'ktav, the written Torah, and the oral Torah. So think about that for a second. If Moshe receives the oral Torah... And then dies. Ears and dying. I don't know what's going on over here today with Jonathan. So, um, but what that means is the rabbis trace their interpretation of Torah... Back to Moses. Moses gives it to Joshua. Joshua gives it to the 70 elders. The 70 elders give it to the son. So when we give smicha, when we put our hand, well, we don't do this in the Reconstructionist movement, but in the other movements, when they put their hands on people who are becoming rabbis and they give them smicha, what are they giving them? They are giving them the zappage that goes all the way back to Sinai that includes not only the, writ, the authority to deal with written Torah, but to interpret Torah. Because that was given to Moshe too on Sinai. You see, see how audacious and chutzpahdik the rabbis are? Yeah. That is incredibly chutzpahdik. Not only what's been preserved in the written tradition, but everything we're saying about it, that too was given to Sinai. Yeah. Says who? I mean, right? So it's so chutzpahdik, it's so fabulous, right? That they <laughs> they read their own authority back into God at Sinai. It's fabulous. You gotta well, love it. It's so Jewish. But if that's not what happened, what was going on the mountain for so long? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, if he wasn't writing all that. Yes. And, and <coughs> what you said, and, you know, why does it matter? Why this overlay? So what is sort of the question that, like, if we forgot about? that what is in the Torah actually came from God, which you truly believed was the biggest power in the universe, then you can't just throw it away. Then you, you have, have to, to give the people something, no, no, the myth, to keep them. All right. So, so there's a so so birth right. So if if you if you, if you buy this, it comes from God in any way, has any authority. Mm-hmm. You have to do Sukkot. You have to do Shavuot. There's not. Whether it means something to you or not, too bad. Chakamatzot doesn't matter. No pizza, no beer. I don't care if it means something to you or not, right? So that's one 
level. What I hear you saying is, okay, well, if you're not doing that, then what the rabbis are saying, we're afraid people aren't going to do that, so now we're going to make up some stuff to go on top of it so that people will continue to do it. Why bother? What I'm going to say is that's a cynical reading of what we do in, in religious life. And, and, and we can read it cynically, right? And sometimes I do read it cynically. It's like, oh, come on, really? But, but if we don't, let's just step back and for a second not read it cynically. Why do I bother reconstructing this stuff in here every Friday morning? Why not just say, you know what, we don't harvest anymore? Why do I not do that? Because it's not just that I want to keep my power and authority, although I definitely want to keep my power and authority. <laughs> um, I'm very, you know I'm always going to be honest. Right? So, um, so yes, we, we, the rabbis wanted their you know, interpretations and their positions and their whatever. Really, what, what it's about is feeding the people with what's from the past that we reconstruct to be meaningful today. Because otherwise we do. We just say, forget it. Why bother? But like Sarah said, if we really value memory, if we really value what the mythic import of these stories, when we're talking about the historical layer, what that means, then it still informs our lives today. We're not making that up, right? that's, That's true. Revelation is true, right? Revelation is true. We have the, the ability to confront and meet the divine and understand things differently and, and come to truth. And we celebrate that, right? That's teaching, learning. Maybe another way of saying it is that there is a, still a human craving for some kind of way of processing and making meaning. Yeah. And, so we and, and we Jews have chosen not to give up our old symbols just because they don't mean what they originally meant any more than, than these two things originally had anything to do with each other. Pesach and Chag HaMatzot had nothing to do with each other. They were completely different festivals. Right? But they didn't just abandon those and say, oh, we're Israelites now. Right? They said, okay, wait, we have this attachment to this thing that happens in the spring. Our lambing, right? And how do we express gratitude for all of this, you know, flocks that we have? And how do we deal with we're so gr- grateful for the harvest, right? So they they bring them together and they bring them forward and they reconstruct them into being about the exodus and that night of watching and, and fleeing so fast the dough wouldn't rise. Um, so, right, so they reconstruct it. So that's what we always do and we've chosen not to abandon that project because we find meaning in connecting backward and deeply through thousands of years of Jews relating to this. That's, that's the non-cynical way, I th- I, for me anyway, to, I to understand a, it. Robert? Well, there, there, there is another, in my mind at least, another practical consideration. If you don't evolve, it's not clear you will survive in, in the long term. It's well, you won't. So, so you could read that cynically and say, well, they wanted to survive, and so they make up all this stuff, is what we were... No, no. Laura was. Well, what if they don't survive? Right. Well, some religions don't. Uh, right. And uh, exactly. there's a lot of other things that don't. Right, so Laura's saying, so what's the big deal? So Judaism, so Israelite religion doesn't survive. Who needs it, really? No, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so that Robert seems pretty clear, like, well, otherwise it wouldn't survive. And, like, we, we want it to survive. Isn't there also a sense? I agree that that's... No, I know. So, right, do you, so do you see she's not disagreeing? I loved your answer, which is because otherwise it wouldn't survive. When Laurel was asking, I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, what's the big deal about it? You could say, what's the big deal about it surviving? Unless you want a job as the rabbis. That's the question I asked. Right? There was a desperation for it to survive all along. Or a passion by Jewish leaders to say, this feeds us. It's good for us. We need this. We want you to need it. We have to convince the Jews they need this, by the way, a lot of the time. Right, <laughs> Jonna. Does it does it kind of go back to like faith in in God and the divine? In other words, you don't have you don't do uh, you know harvesting anymore, but then there's something else. But just because you're not seeing it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So that you know, you're embodied in that faith to keep. But you could say then just get rid of all this. Let's just go meditate. We can access the divine through lots of different ways. Just who, who needs all this? If you're not harvesting anymore, 
But get but, rid of it. I mean, but people, but maybe, I don't know, people, we need something to do. This is something to do. Mm -hmm. Rituals. Right? We need the rituals. Right. So we're not, so it's just transferring <coughs> the ritual of harvest to. So, I mean, I think that's the answer to how and why it survives. Isn't that what young It's because ritual are. ties us, right. right, to... So it doesn't have to be just self, you know, fulfilling for the rabbis. Amy, isn't that what young Hoshua is? We, we, we made this... This is the modern venture catastrophe, but this is now ingrained in our... Yeah, we're, we're always making up new holidays, including Hanukkah. A tradition like ours that in the midst of plenty of harvest, remembers the poor and tells you to remember those who don't have, that's worth preserving. Amen, Sister Sarah. Any tradition that says in the midst of our bounty, we should remember the poor. Here we see it with Shavuot, that when you harvest, make sure you are not harvesting and taking what belongs to the poor. And we see it here over and over and over during the Seder. We see you shall love the stranger. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Don't think it's them. You can never otherwise. It was you. Right? And so absolutely I believe it is definitely worth preserving. Okay, two things and then I want to get to your Omer. I just want to say that the Sukkot in the mitzvah of inviting strangers to your Sukkot, you have to pick up the word in So that's transferring the giving to the poor, you're inviting strangers who may not have a Sukkot or may need a meal. Right. So. Absolutely. And again, rabbinic. Okay. Ushpizin is rabbinic. Right. right? Omer. Great. But, but After in, Linda Omer. In addition to keeping in mind the poor and, and helping and so forth, it's the gathering of community it helps keep the the faithful. If you want to put it that way, mm -hmm. I mean, gather them in your Sukkot, you gather them this holiday and that holiday. Sure, but we could also gather on Christmas. But we don't. Right. So that's part of the discussion. Is what? Why not? Right. Is it why? why? Why keep it at Shavuot when there's plenty of other times we could gather, right? And so that so so it's both the gathering and the I believe the historical connection to the fact that our people have gathered at these times for so many thousands of years. It remains really right. Okay, there you go. That 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 informs right our gathering in in a different way. Um, because truly, like... It's just not getting together for a party. It has reasons. Right. Well, it has anchor. Anchor. Right? Okay. Because uh, you have to buy the reason. <laughs> um, okay. Blah, 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 blah. So, so, going from... So, what... Our year starts here, right? Our year starts at Pesach. Then we come to, boom, Shavuot... And then we get to Sukkot. How do we get from Pesach to Shavuot? We count. We count. We count 50 days. We count the Omer. We count the Omer. So there's a tradition to count the Omer every day. There's a formula. There's a blessing uh, to count the Omer every day. Um, one of my favorites was to teach Eliana was counting the Omer with Homer. <laughs> and it's a Simpsons Omer calendar. <laughs> Is that hilarious? Yeah. About as well as her birthday being in the snow-filled sukkah. Nice try, right? All right, so, the, so when we get, so we go from Pesach, we count the Omer for 50 days, and the, you know, highlight of the end of the Omer is that we receive Torah. At the end of the counting, we're counting, 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 waiting, 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 waiting. Finally, we get to uh, Shavuot. But during the Omer, Orthodox people don't get their hair cut, they don't uh, have weddings except on Rosh Focus. How does that develop? What's the underlying tradition of that? You know, it's a good question. It sounds like it's part of the big buildup. Right? <laughs> so excited. It's so much Shavuot. It's so much Shavuot. Like, well, grow your beard. It's the there's, whole series. There's a, it's the world series. There's a tradition that the students of Rabbi Akiva died. They died all through this period, except they didn't die on what? Nobody died on what day? Happened this week. Lagba Omer. What is Lagba Omer? What is Lag? 
33. 33. So on the 33rd day of the Omer, nobody died. So that's when in Israel they have big bonfires and you shoot bow and arrow and you go outside and, and celebrate and you're on the beach till two and three in the morning. Oh, no. These kids are like, seriously, I talked to my friend Panina and she's like, sorry, Panina. Um, and, and she like, and her daughter was like 14 and I'm like, where's Shachar? And she's like, because it's late there. And she's like, well, it's Lag Bomer. I said, so, so where is she? She's like, well, she's at the beach. I'm like, like, it's really late. Like, Liana would like that. Oh, Liana would love that, right? So, but the, the tradition, like, and it's safe and it's, like, understood to be, like, you know, it's, like, it's a holiday and it's taken very seriously, but it's also, like, super safe. Like, nobody feels like, ooh, it's after dark and you have to get your kid off the, you know, um, which is what I love about Israel. Um, all right, so, so... Boom, revelation. So the, the, there's a buildup from the beginning of the year and everything being reborn in springtime to uh, revelation. What is the characterization of, of uh, Sukkot in the... Because Sukkot's last. It's not over here. Sukkot's the fall harvest, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the last. The move is towards Sukkot, and what is Sukkot all about? What is it called by the rabbis? Zman, this is Zman Cherutenu, the time of our freedom. This is Zman Matan Toratenu, the time of the receiving of our Torah. What is Sukkot? Zman Simchatenu. Yes, Zman Simchatenu. All right, so that is about rejoicing, right? What, why can't I write? Like, what's going on? Zman Simchatenu. Okay, so Zman Simchatenu is the time of our, the season of our joy. So the movement from birth, birth to counting to waiting to anticipating to learning to coming into being in relationship with the divine in a different way, understanding how to live rightly in the world, leads us down to the last festival, which is about joy. So the, cal- the calendar year moves from rebirth and the meaning of what it means to set out and become a people and schlepping and, and right, the terror of leaving, all through the wandering in the desert and the meaning of receiving Torah to move to a place of joy. That is the movement of the year. What if that really were how we oriented ourselves? That the movement of the year is towards joy. Right, as the ultimate goal. That's what you have here from the Institute of Jewish Spirituality by Rabbi Mark Margolius, who lays this out for us. Um, and so he says on page two, at the top of page two, you have my color highlight, yes? Okay, wow, that worked. Taken together, these descriptions of the calendar point towards an ongoing cycle of spiritual practice which leads to a stage of simcha, joy. By inference, the practice of counting the Omer, there you go, Rita, which we're in right now, We're counting the Omer right now. By inference, the practice of counting the Omer is the period between Pesach and Shavuot, in which we are currently immersed, is part of the process of moving in the direction of joy. But but can one prescribe or dictate an emotional state? Last week in Parshat Kedoshim, the same question arose when the Torah warned against bearing grudges and instead loving one's neighbor. What does the Torah mean by the word simcha? And how can we instill it within ourselves? Meaning, like, how can you say, okay, because, and what he's pointing to is that there's a saying, um, from Torah, you shall rejoice in your festivals. Sorry, singular, this festival, Sukkot. And you shall be only sameach, only happy by the time you get to Sukkot. And so it's like, how can, how can you command and you shall be only joyful, but if you think about it, how can you command you shall love, right? So this is the question that, that uh, Rabbi Margolius is bringing up. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs observes that the word simcha appears only once in each book of the Torah other than Deuteronomy, in which it is used frequently and represents a leitmotif. 
Paradoxically, Simcha is referred to most frequently in the book of Ecclesiastes, a text known for its dourness and cynicism. So go to my next highlight. From this, we can infer that Kohelet is acutely conscious of our impermanence as human beings, right? So that that book is all about Hevel. It's all frivolity. It's all nothing. It's all smoke. It's all mirrors. It's all, right? It's all nothingness in a way. Huh? Pointlessness. Thank you, Richard. Um, it's pointless, right? That's kind of how people understand what Kohelet is saying. But the word joy, simcha, appears more in the book of Kohelet than anywhere else. So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is saying, it isn't that Kohelet says, because everything is pointless, you should be miserable. Dafka, sometimes it's the opposite. It's when we become aware of how fleeting it all is, that is often when we stop and find joy in really small things. And gratitude. Gratitude, I think, is, is a prerequisite for joy. Mm-hmm. I think there's something past gratitude, which is joy, right? But, but it's, 100% has to start with gratitude. But that, that sense of, because it's all so fragile, and it goes so fast, and the older we get, it goes faster, as we all know. Um, and because of that, there's this poignant kind of joy that only happens once you know that. And once you know loss, and once you know real sorrow, joy takes on, doesn't it, a different quality after you know. And the more loss, the, the, the deeper the loss, I want to be careful how I say this, the, the deeper the loss, I think there's a, a depth and quality to joy that we experience that is directly related. Some of the most joyful people I know are people who have experienced the most horrific things life offers. I'm not saying they're happy all the time. I'm not saying they're joyful all the time. When they are in joy, they are in joy because they know from suffering. And so they appreciate. I'm not saying everybody, but the people, but I'm saying that when I know people who, who, who have that quality of just really being able to be in joy, they are people who have lost. They're people who have suffered. It's the perfect circle of life. Everybody goes through pain and suffering. And if you go through this circle to its completion, you get to that place. We hope. That, that's kind of the point. And that's why it's a commandment. You shall rejoice. Figure it out, people. <laughs> right? It's not going to come naturally. It's not going to come easily. But you must find ways to practice that will lead you to a place of joy. And the whole calendar is here to do exactly that. To move us one step further. And down at the bottom of that page, the last sentence, awareness of the impermanence of our breath and of life itself leads to experiencing simcha on a moment-to-moment basis. We don't depend anymore on, I got the job, so I'm in joy. Right. It worked out just like I planned. Right. Woohoo! Like, what? When you become aware of right, awareness of the impermanence of everything, then joy is located in this really small moment. When Judy says to Eliana, who's not allowed to take her phone when she walks the dog, right? Because otherwise, this is how she walks the dog. <laughs> um, when Judy says, take, take your phone with you when you walk Olivia and look at the wildflowers on the side of the hill, right? Take take pictures because she knows Ellie takes really nice pictures. So it's like, it's a, that's where joy is found, right? Is, is when you know the impermanence, then it's like the wildflowers are in bloom. Stop the car. Stop the car, right? Because you get out and say, wow, or you slow down, whatever. All right. Um, and so then we get a quote from Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav. Um, Mitzvah tamid. He was bipolar, Rabbi Nachman. He was bipolar and so suffered terribly, terrible bouts of depression. And he leaves us with this quote, mitzvah tamid. It is a great mitzvah to be in joy tamid, always. Right? So someone who suffered the depths of despair is the one saying, it's a great mitzvah to reach for being in joy. Um, all right, so I, I know we need to move on. I need to let go. Um, 
go to page four. Mindfulness and midot, this is my next highlight in contrast to this, that paragraph. Mindfulness and midot, meaning you know, uh, spiritual qualities, does not mean eschewing sadness or anxiety in order to practice simcha. To the contrary, it involves embracing with compassion these challenging emotions, thought patterns, and narratives, thereby transforming the energy within them so as to yield the spiritual state of simcha. Experiencing and cultivating a sense of deep relation to others and to ourselves helps relieve our constrictions and allow the chiyut, the life force within them, to shift and flow in its proper, more wholesome, and holy direction. So it's not to say we're not sad or anxious. It's not to deny those things, right? But it's to figure out how, how can we lean in, allow them to be there, have a heart of deep compassion for ourselves and for others. And in relating to others, we can shift how anxiety and the depression of our own sadnesses and situations affects us, right? And can, can move us, right? To even just to a place of compassion for other people who suffer. Right? The moment we suffer deeply, don't we have a different way of relating to people who we know are suffering? Absolutely, right? Um, we can assist this process not by trying to compel ourselves to be happy, but by understanding our grief, sadness, and pain as portals to profound connection. What Rabbi J. Michelson aptly describes as unhappy happiness. The simcha, the joy born of a sense of spiritual connection. We don't have to feel happy to experience joy. Anyone who has suffered profound loss and at the same time in the midst of sadness and grief has experienced deep connection and peace understands this phenomenon well. And so we'll close. In this period of the Omer, may we understand the process of counting each day up to Shavuot as leading us step by step towards a fuller understanding of living, as Rabbi Nachman advised, tamid, in a constant state of joy and connection to ourselves, others, and our understanding of God. May our day-to-day, moment-by-moment practice of coming back again and again to our own unique, precious truth reveal that which is concealed from us, that we are profoundly, inextricably connected in an unfathomable web of life energy through time and space. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.